When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Golf Unfiltered podcast is brought to you by WorldwideGolfShops.com. Be sure to go out to WorldwideGolfShops.com for all of your equipment, apparel, and accessory needs. They've even got training aids. They've got all the great stuff from all the brands that you hear on our podcast every week. So once again, that is WorldwideGolfShops.com. You're listening to the Golf Unfiltered Podcast, your source for in-depth interviews with the biggest names, brands, and personalities in golf. Our mission, to keep you informed and help you enjoy the game even more. And now, the owner and host of the Golf Unfiltered Podcast, Adam Fonseca. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Golf Unfiltered Podcast. This is episode 223. I am your host, as always, Adam from GolfUnfiltered.com. You can follow me all over social media at Golf Unfiltered. Send us an email, golfunfiltered at gmail.com. Hello to our friends, as always, over at thehackersparadise.com. And to those of you listening to this on their THP mobile app. And, of course, hello to our friends over at Cleveland and Srixon Golf. You guys know I've been playing their equipment all season long. Continue to do so. Love everything about it. I can't say enough good things about Cleveland and Srixon. You guys know that. Today, we have another content creator on the show. <laughs> That's another term that a lot of people uh, have mixed feelings about, but Ryan Barath of uh, Golf WRX is actually on the show today. He joins me to talk about one of his passions and one that is becoming an emerging, uh, well, I don't know if it's a passion yet, but it's more so a glorified hobby for me, and that is club building. And so Ryan talks a lot about, in the content that he produces, he talks a lot about building uh, clubs. He's a master club builder, he uh, used to uh, help out with Modern Golf as well. He was the build shop manager and social media coordinator over there. Ryan and I get into all of this today, and we also talk a lot, of course, about the intricacies of building golf clubs. Now, if you follow uh, Golf Unfiltered on social media, you'll see that I've tried my hand at a few builds myself. I've only done a few growing up working at a golf course. I was able to do some very minor golf repairs, such as you know, regripping. I guess that would be more maintenance, but I can regrip clubs, you know, uh, pull shafts, all that type of stuff. And now I'm actually trying to learn how to do other things. And one of the best resources that I've found online is Ryan Barath. And so that's why he's on the show today. We're going to talk about what he uh, feels is most important about new folks like myself getting into club building for the first time, as well as what you should as a consumer pay attention to when you are not only shopping for clubs, but perhaps even, you know, maintaining your clubs, especially over the winter season when most of us put those things back in the garage. So, without much further ado, I hope you enjoy this uh, in-depth conversation about club building with Ryan Barath. Let's go. I know you love the game, even though it drives every single one of us crazy. Hi, this is Bill Hobson, and I host the Four Golfers Network podcast, where we celebrate golf in every way imaginable. You'll hear interviews with the biggest names in the sport, travel features, special contests, and we even take your calls. So after you listen to Adam and Golf Unfiltered, give us a try. Subscribe to the Four Golfers Network podcast. That's F-O-R-E on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else podcasts are found. 
All right, folks, welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, very excited to welcome on another content creator, Mr. Ryan Barath. He is of Golf WRX. He is a writer. He's a podcaster over there. He creates a lot of great content on club building specifically. And Ryan, it's great that we have the chance to connect and uh, thank you for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having me. Any, any chance I get to talk about club building, I'm happy to happy to sit in front of a microphone. <laughs> I understand that, believe me. And as listeners know, uh, we've been talking a lot about not only club building, but also just the tech that goes into clubs. But before we get into all of that, the keen listeners might have heard a slight accent in something you just said. And so where are you located and how long have you uh, been club building? Uh, so I am, I'm located in Canada. I'm just a couple hours west of Toronto mm-hmm. uh, in a little town called Port Dover. I used to live in a, in a city that was a little closer to Toronto, but that's uh, that's more in the minutia of things. <laughs> so I am Canadian, and the reason I got into club building was very simple. I actually grew up in a small town, very much like I'm living right now, and I was in an era when there wasn't beyond like big box stores and a few people kind of doing it on the side like little small timey things generally retired people that were you know kind of into it as a hobby Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of access where i was to get things done my dad taught me how to regroup golf clubs just by using a little like work made in the garage and it just kind of got me hooked i was always a kid that tinkered i played with i tore tore apart my skateboard tore apart my bicycle (laughs) and i was lucky that my when our lawnmower died, my dad let me take that apart too. I had no chance of putting it back together, but I definitely <laughs> So when I got involved with golf, it was something where I realized, oh, you can actually change these parts around. And because there wasn't access to it and, you know, we had to read magazines back when I was a kid uh, and learn these things, I just got into them and got really excited about learning about them. And I had to do it myself because I couldn't drive anywhere and I didn't mm-hmm. want to ask my parents to drive me an hour to go to a big box store to drop stuff off to get you know, go pick it up two days later, three days later. So I just, you know, worked it out. And that's a great way to get started. And as listeners and followers of Golf Unfiltered know, I'm dabbling a little bit in in club building. I've uh, grown up in the game. I've had the opportunity to do just some pretty basic maintenance things like regripping and whatnot. And so you take it to an incredibly different level and you're a master club builder yourself. Uh, The progression from where you just needed to do things your own as a, as a child into where you are now, has that, how long has that taken? And I'd imagine that it's, it's really important to stay up on the new tech in order to help the customers that you serve. Yeah. And the biggest thing there is no, like there really is no certification to call yourself a master club builder. So it's, it's a title that is more in line with like being able to understand technology and what goes into like different golf clubs and what makes uh, myself very unique, and you'll see this at a lot of uh, places that do custom club building, is that they don't just work with one OEM. I work with everybody. You know, every OEM has really great specialized club builders, but someone who works at, let's say, TaylorMade might not understand the finer details of how someone assembles a Callaway Fairywood adapter. Mm-hmm. But I have to know all of these things, and. That's the only reason why, I, again, I kind of use that title because it's something of, as far as a knowledge base goes. Uh, I've been doing it for so long that I feel that so, if someone was to bring me a club from X company and a shaft, I can put it together. There's no, there's no real – I still have to figure out what's going on and when new product comes out. There was periods of time when I was building at very high volume and new stuff would come out. And we'd have to basically break it down and figure out how to put it back together and what 
you know, what shims we needed, what ferrules we needed, what type of uh, epoxy, and all these different things that go into every component. We had to figure that out every single time something came out. Hmm. And so those are really the, the big detail side of things to make sure that people underst- understand that we can deliver a product to a customer to the desired spec. And so continuing education in this space is obviously vitally important. How, how do you stay up on everything? Is it just a matter of getting experience as things get released? Do you have equipment sent to you? How, how do you continue your education? It's always about constant kind of tinkering, to be real honest with you. Like uh, I have to, like I look, I get to, because of what my job, I get to, I get access to a lot of equipment. I get to ask people a lot of different questions and like there are parts that have stayed the same. Like for example, a Titleist adapter has basically remained the same for a long period of time. So mm-hmm. I know the parts I need, I know how to put those things together. But when something new comes out, I haven't worked with it yet, but I know uh, like Hanma has this really cool sleeve, for example, that goes in and it doesn't rotate the shaft. And I've actually never seen one in person. Hmm. I, I haven't had the chance to build one yet. But I, if I get one, I'd have to definitely figure out how the heck it works. <laughs> right. Just pull the shaft out of it. So it's it's always about for me, it's 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 like I have so I get so much more so much enjoyment from being able to just pull things apart and put them back together, because like I said earlier, like since I was a kid, I just want to know how things work, and it, it's just constantly, constantly learning and understanding how these things go together. Because if you don't know, you got to figure it out. Because you have to put a golf club, a finished golf club, into either your hands or someone else's hands, and it has to be usable. It also has to be safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big thing. You want to make sure that thing doesn't fall apart, and which was always a concern in the first few clubs that I built, I got to tell you, Ryan. Um, so as you continue to fine-tune your skills, what was one of the more difficult things to learn regarding club building, whether it be the type of club that you had to build or an aspect of it? The one would probably be uh, swing weighting was always something that was kind of a little bit of a mystery, unless you had a swing weight scale and lead tape. Those are really simple things. But at the end of the day probably the most difficult thing is actually matching a set of golf clubs together mm. so from wedges to irons to hybrids to woods to driver a putter is a completely separate story but to get those golf clubs to somewhat match relative to the player with different oems different shafts different shaft weights and trying to actually understand how the whole thing flows together and it's not just from a building perspective too it's from a fitter's perspective so if you have, a, let's say you started with a 60 gram graphite shaft in your irons and someone is going to go into like something that's a little heavier into the wedges, you have to figure out how to make those flexes work together so someone doesn't go from their pitching wedge to their gap wedge and go, this is really heavy and it feels very stiff. It should just flow. Mm-hmm. As far as the building goes, you have to have, some of it has to do with equipment and understanding frequency and uh, club head weight and all these little different kind of smaller details to actually make it so when a customer picks up a golf club from their set and goes, oh, this feels great because I, I never want someone to have a favorite club in their bag. I want when I build them a set of golf clubs that every club is their favorite club in their bag. Hmm. That's a good goal to have. And I know that even in limited amount of experience I have with it, it is uh, the swing weight, something you were talking about, is so important. And you can definitely tell when something doesn't flow through the set. And I think maybe what you just mentioned is something that perhaps consumers uh, maybe take a little bit for granted that they don't necessarily feel a huge weight difference from one club to the next yeah it's i mean swing weight as a, as a whole is overrated like people put a, a they people look at a definitive total 
and they wonder why they're like D2 or D3, the kind of numbers people are always familiar with. And But no one really knows what it means, like from a general consumer standpoint. A lot of people probably listen to this who are into golf and into golf going probably understand these kind of things. But mm-hmm. a lot of people will like, you know, read, a, read a, a magazine and see something or read a form and go, oh, this pro uses this spec. Well, I probably need that too. But the only reason those clubs end up at that spec is generally because the components that are there are going to trend towards that final number rather than saying that, you know, they're going to take all these components and make them fit that. They're going to build all these components and it's going to end up somewhere around there. And then the goal is to match the rest of the set around it. Um, And like total weight is a huge factor. You can make a golf club that swing weight's very, very light and is extremely heavy. Mm. So when people, I used to work as a, uh, what was it, like a demo day tech rep for a couple different OEMs. And that was one of the questions I'd get fairly often. It's like, if I custom order, can I get a, this? And you'd have to be like, it doesn't really work like that. Maybe potentially, yes, but we can't always hit those numbers. If you know, if you're using a 50 gram graphite shaft to get it really heavy, it's probably not a possibility. That's interesting too, because something you mentioned just a minute ago is something we've heard from uh, club fitters as well. And that is you're not just serving the the customer in front of you you're also potentially fitting or in your case recommending club builds to the rest of their foursome do, do you hold that to be true as well with club building uh not necessarily i i always i always think that like from the fitting side of things and i'm lucky to have done both and i think uh it's not like it's they're not mutually exclusive but i think to be a great club builder it also you need some fitting experience or to be one or the other mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. if you can't if you recommend something and then it ends up being like not possible from the building side of things then that can be difficult for the for the fitter to understand and there's like then you have to go back and forth with from a communication standpoint and try and problem solve but every time you build a set of golf because it's strictly for the individual and don't be wrong, like you say. Like I've, I've definitely uh, experienced where built a set of golf clubs for somebody, and they, you know, people generally play with people within their own demographic. If it's like an age thing or whatever it is, right? right. And definitely built lightweight, strong lofted, a little bit longer graphite shafted irons. And the next thing you know, someone calls up and said, "I just played with Mr. Smith. Uh, I know he got his clubs from you guys. I went to the range with him after the round because he was hitting it too close further than he's ever hit it before, and I just want those clubs because I hit them really well too." And, you know, you try and talk that person into a fitting and sometimes, depending on the person, they don't even care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't, you're not going to argue with someone who wants to A, spend money and doesn't want to come in and see you. So you can say, okay, <laughs> your specs here, we're going to build to their specs. And if you have any questions or you need them adjusted, please give us a call and we build some golf clubs up and send them out on their way. And, you know, that's kind of how sometimes the business works. It is, especially in golf with the whole immediate gratification thing of especially some of the golfers I play with. They just want the equipment right now. Um, You know, Ryan, uh, a few questions that I know that you've received on social and a few that I have as well, just in regard to uh, amateur club building itself. Now, obviously, you know, if we want something done right the first time, we're going to come to someone like you. But I also know, and you do as well, that people like to tinker with their own clubs, much like you did and I do now. A couple just general questions, if you don't mind, and one of which is just the shop setup itself. Now, obviously, you have shared some pictures on social. You just shared one recently. I believe it was today, and you got a great setup. I know that you just moved, (laughs) Uh, and so you've got a nice setup now. Uh, Someone getting started with club building probably doesn't need all of that stuff right from the start. What would you recommend as maybe the one or two essentials for the upstart club builder? 
Oh, easily. A workbench and a vice. Hmm. You can do so much with just those two simple tools. You can you can regrip. You can, depending on the workbench and depending on the style of vice, you can do some, you know, beginner stamping on wedges. Uh, those are those are two things that are very, very helpful. And from a vice, you can instantly expand your tool capacity. You can get a shaft puller that fits in your vice. You can get uh, more of a I, – I have a full gripping station. So instead of having to unwind the vice, put the rubber clamp in, don't mm-hmm. clamp too hard to do the grips, and then have some type of catch basin below, you can put your, sh- uh, your, your gripping station into the vice on the bench, and all of a sudden you can work a lot faster and a lot more efficiently. From there, either – you know, a traditional just like pipe cutter, like copper pipe cutter that you have to spin around the golf shaft. Mm-hmm. It's not efficient, but it's a great way if you if you're just reshafting something like wedges and you're uh, it's the most commonly broken golf club for some reason. <laughs> and you go from you you can start with that and then you can work into say a hacksaw or a belt sander. But those are really the simple things because if you have that vice and you have that bench, you can do a lot. Um, and then from there, you obviously you can expand into like exponentially and. I like to have a lot of workspace, so I have things kicking around, which is really nice. And that was kind of one of the almost prerequisites of us purchasing a new place, mm-hmm. just like my wife has her hobby of like sewing and knitting, which she's like fantastic at. But mm-hmm. it takes it's like just like golf club building, it takes a lot of space. And so we both wanted to make sure that we both had our spaces and have them functioning. And it's uh, it's pretty neat to be able to have that for both of us, actually. That's actually a really good point. My wife uh, does a lot of artwork, and so she's got an office upstairs where I'm in the basement where I probably belong in the first place is where my workbench is. Um, but that's interesting because you did say that you could do so much with a vice, and I remember growing up at the golf course, that was all really we had was a workbench and a vice, and then from there, you kind of just expand, as you mentioned, to other areas. Where is a area that amateurs, you know, certainly you can go and buy a loft and lie machine, for example, if you want to, and you have the means to do so. But is that something that amateurs really need to educate themselves a lot more about before they just start bending clubs? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's, I mean, it's, it's not overly difficult. It really isn't, but it takes experience to do it properly. And there are times when like, I could throw a wedge into my lie loft machine Depending on the on the wedge, if it's like forge or cast or whatever model it is or whatever it happens to be, and I can go boom, boom, and I can get it probably very, very close to what it's supposed to be. And then maybe it's a little bit of fine tweaking. But if you give that to somebody who's never done it before, they're either going to way overbend it or they're going to be too scared to actually move it at all. Mm. One of the first things I did whenever I was teaching someone or showing someone how to build golf clubs is I'd have them break a golf club. Hmm. It's it Because it gives you the idea, you understand you're not scared of it. Right. Usually you find an old fitting head or something kicking around the shop. And you say, OK, just bend it till it breaks. And a lot of times it, it completely removes that fear because at the end of the day, it's just a it's just a measuring gauge. And so as long as someone understands how to use or like put the club in, set it properly, measure it and bend it and then go from there. And if it means resetting it before measuring it again, it's just the process. But the experience comes from a lot of times the confidence to be able to bend it properly or bend it efficiently and to bend without creating extra marks or going through certain processes so you don't put a bunch of dings in, in a set of irons for a customer or for even just for yourself. But it it doesn't take a huge amount to learn it. It just takes a lot to be able to be 
experience to feel confident to be good at it, if that makes any sense at all. It does, definitely. And I know that one of the first things I did um, when I got my loft and line machine is I went to a neighborhood thrift store and bought just an older iron. And I tried to do exactly what you just mentioned, tried to bend it, get a feel for it, see if I could break the thing. And so I think that's really good advice to the listeners if you want to get into that to try to kind of go that route. Yeah, that's, I mean, I have, I have two of these like old uh, Mizuno T10 wedge heads that have actually been bent to zero loft and zero lie. <laughs> the only reason they exist is because they were sitting in a drawer. So we had messed around, practiced stamping and stuff on them. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to break this just to show someone like you can break it. And then the more I bent it, the more it didn't break. And then, of course, it became a challenge to just get it right to zero, zero, mm. which we eventually did. No heat, no anything. It's just we just bent it. But so it, it kind of defeated the purpose of trying to break one. So we broke the next one instead. But <laughs> all about the understanding of how much force. And it's just it comes down to touch, right? You know, if you're going to go play golf and you're going to go try and hit flop shots, it's probably good that you practice flop shots so you're not sculling them across the green and killing somebody. So it's very much the same thing. You just create a feel and you create a repetition so you understand what you're doing long term. So you mentioned heat. The use of heat in club building is very important. Do you have a preference over one over the other, butane or a heat torch? So I use a, like a little butane micro torch, generally for pulling club heads. I also have a map gas torch, which burns like twice as hot, I think. I could be very wrong on that. I have no idea. But I just know that it burns a lot hotter than the butane. The flame's also a lot larger, too. You can use that for, you know, flaming wedges or creating some cool discoloration or just torching in general. People understand what that process means. You're getting things very hot, and it's not something I encourage people to do if they're, like, you know, just inside a small space or anything like that because it can be dangerous. But... I never use a heat gun. Heat guns are like the worst thing that people, they were introduced because people used to think they're actually safer. And yeah, it's great, but you're, you're heating this huge area and it takes a long period of time. You can pull a, a, a tip, like an adapter from any most OEM drivers, or you can pull an iron with a, with a butane torch in like five seconds. Hmm. Because you're, you're focusing the heat, you're going to break down the epoxy and it's going to happen very quickly. Whereas if you're using a heat gun, you're actually going to start heating up the shaft, you're going to start heating up the, maybe the medallion in the club head. And the next thing you know, you've, you've ruined both of them and you still haven't accomplished the goal of actually removing the club head from the shaft. That's really interesting. And I, so I've actually used the heat gun and, and I know I want to get a microbutane torch, but uh, I always would be concerned about, especially on a driver adapter, that you would melt it. Are you saying that because it's metal in the inside of those adapters usually that it's going to take a lot more heat than maybe I think? Yeah, you might, you might end up ruining the, the ferrule, which is very common. You just, you just end up using a new ferrule after the fact. Mm-hmm. You just go slow with the butane torch. You just go, just go for like three or four seconds, boom, try it. If it doesn't go, let it sit for five, ten seconds, try again, put it in the shaft puller, and then keep going. Because adapters now are aluminum, so the aluminum is uh, anonized, so they have colors or whatever writing on them. So if you do heat them up, you can actually ruin the anonization, and what will happen is it starts to flake. You haven't ruined the actual functional like ability of the adapter, but you might have discolored it. So again, if it's for a customer or for someone else, you might not want to do that because then you're out 50 bucks for a new adapter depending on the OEM. But if it's your own, it's kind of like, okay, well, I learned a lesson and I'll do it again. But it's, uh, it's just the, it's the amount of heat and you'll know right away. And that's, it's getting, it's the same thing I've ruined as, and I'll stop and I'll just kind of go off a little quick tangent here. Mm-hmm. I ruined a lot of golf clubs before I got really good at it. And I did it on purpose because the only way, like I said, just like with bending, you have to know how to 
where your breaking point is to create problems before you find out what solutions are. Not that I'm encouraging you to go out and, and ruin your new set of golf clubs, but if, as you said, you go go to a thrift store, maybe you have an old set, you go to a used club store and just buy some old junky things kind of kicking around, whether they be forged or cast or whatever they are, and practice. The best things to buy are like old wedges because they they generally don't have any medallions and they're generally steel shafted. So you can learn really quickly with wedges. You can learn to bend them. You can learn to stamp them. And it gives you a really good entryway into club building. Mm-hmm. So as far as, like, say, using heat, you can learn pretty quickly how to do that. And if it means, you know, maybe you ruin adapter, hopefully you don't. But just slow and steady, and eventually that thing's going to come off. That's good advice as well. I mean, and listeners, go out to your thrift stores. Thrift stores are going to love us, Ryan. We're getting them business here with this with this episode. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about, and I know this is something that's come through on social as well, is in regard to epoxy. I mean, you can go out to any hardware store, even on Amazon. You could see just a long list of different epoxies. Is there is there one that you think that listeners should look out for? Ones that you prefer to use? So if you're if you're just getting into it, use a longer set epoxy. Use something that takes like thirty to thirty minutes to an hour, and depending on your environmental situations, it could go be longer or shorter, but really hot or humid or whatever. But anything that step gives you about forty five minutes of work time is going to allow you to, you know, potentially make mistakes and go back and pull a club head or do those kind of things. I don't often rec I don't really ever use quick set because I I'm kind of planning for what I'm going to be doing as far as club building goes. So it also allows me to build a set of build a set of irons and build some wedges and oh maybe I'll build a wood and I can go grab those things and put them together all in this this one mix of epoxy. The other thing too is with quick set unless you're using it where it comes out of the packet or comes out of the tubes at an equal amount Sometimes if you mess up the uh, the ratios, mm-hmm. then what ends up happening is it's not going to set properly. It's either going to fall apart, but also when it sets quicker, you're also increasing the opportunity for air bubbles to get in there. And that's where if you've ever seen someone grab a shaft and or grab a grip at the end of a golf club and grab the head and they turn it and it sounds like cracking. Mm-hmm. Little air bubbles are all moving around in the epoxy because they got stuck. So the longer set stuff is a lot easier to work with for beginners. I still use it now, but... If you're in a pinch and you're going to use something, uh, 3M offers, there's like a Scotchwell, a couple different products. There's there's different set times. That's what they generally use on the PGA Tour or LPGA Tour or any professional tour because it's quick. It's very high impact. It is super strong. And a lot of times, too, they're not really worried about pulling these things apart either. That's, right. that's the other thing you have to think about, right? Because there, no one's going to go very rarely to someone, oh, I really like the shaft, blah, blah, blah. Can you adjust the setting? They're going to go, no, no, let's grab another shaft. Let's grab another tip and we'll build it because that's how it works on the PGA Tour. But if you're a hobbyist, then, you know, sometimes the other stuff, like I, I use, I get most of my golf equipment or golf building equipment from Golf uh, Works, mm-hmm. not Golf WRX. Uh, and so they have Canada and US. You can get them from both warehouses, wherever it is. And so I use just their normal, I think it's like Tour Strength 24-hour epoxy. That's what I use. One cool tip, which I will always tell people, is that you'll notice on the sides of most bottles, especially if it's two parts and you're not coming out of a tube using a, some type of like gun or like uh, cocking gun kind of style thing, mm-hmm. is measure the epoxy as per the mass stated, not the um, volume. Interesting. Put it on a scale and it's, let's say, my general epoxy is, one to 0.7. So for every five grams of part A, I use 3.5 grams of part B. That way I know my ratio is going to be bang on instead of trying to eyeball it for volume. 
And, you know, it's just a little quick little tip, but those kind of things go a long way. Yeah, that that is very interesting, too. And I believe you you made a video on that not too uh, long ago. And and what's interesting, too, Ryan, is obviously now with content such as that that you put out, you can go on YouTube, you can find other elements about club building. Obviously, OEMs have to be paying attention to this as well. And I guess in your opinion, would you say that OEMs are supportive of uh, amateur club building, certainly of master club builders like yourself, but are they supportive of that? How, how willing are they to help people if they've got questions? Uh, what's your opinion on that? I've never had a huge issue with any OEMs. I mean, working when I originally, so I've worked in like a large volume custom shop before, and there are times when, you know, getting components from some OEMs are become more difficult. I'm not going to sit there and say they're not. Mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, most of them will sell you the tips and adapters and all those things. One of the best was always uh, PXG because you were when you were a PXG account, you were a PXG certified account, so you were a builder. So you got every component that they had in their own warehouse, you got to work with them. You got the custom tip weights, you got the custom ferrules, you got the little shims that they used. And so you got all of that would make things very – so like for an account perspective, which general consumer is not going to have access to, I, I realize that. But you can get access to those parts in the aftermarket now from certain companies or you can buy those things. And they're they're generally supportive because they want to know if there's a mistake. And I've experienced this with shaft companies before where if I'm measuring something on a frequency scale and, and it, I literally can count on like one hand how many times it's happened with like the thousands where I've been like, this is not the right flex. This mm-hmm. must have been painted wrong. And compare it to three other golf shafts and you pull it out there and you go, no, this definitely is wrong. And you give them a call and you say this is – this is the number on the shaft or whatever. We, we definitely, we checked it a bunch of times and it's, it's incorrect. And they want to know these things because it's like you as a, as a club builder are the next form of quality control, especially at a high volume shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the hobbyist, right, it's uh, unless you're, you can buy OEM parts from a lot of the places like Golf Works or I think Billy Bob's is another place. I think they do with some aftermarket things. I don't, I'm not fully sure because I don't buy a lot of stuff from them. Mm-hmm. But I stock my shop from Golfworks, and that's where I'll get most of my things. And most companies sell those parts because they want to make sure if someone's putting their clubs together, they do it properly. I've also noticed kind of, uh, I don't want to say imitation, but certainly inexpensive uh, parts on the internet, such as Amazon, like I mentioned earlier, such as uh, driver adapters. One that's like a universal driver adapter fits all these models. Would you say that we should stay away from those and buy direct from the uh, the brands, or are those typically safe for the hobbyist? I, I've never used them. I just I just avoid them because I don't know where they came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it doesn't mean that their reviews are bad or they're in, like um, they're false if you if they have that five star review or whatever. Uh, but then it comes down to where's the person that has the experience that's building with them. So I always prefer to use OEM parts. Uh, but saying that, you know, there are companies like Club Connects, which I know someone that I uh, work with, he just, because he's a big shaft junkie, mm-hmm. he just to go the Club Connects route and use a universal adapter tip on all of his golf shafts, buy the extra pieces to fit certain driver heads, and now he can go out and he can put these drivers together they don't have as much adjustability. They have about one degree of adjustability, up or down, or lie angle, whatever it is. Because some companies have, you know, the two degrees, one way or the other. But he really likes it because, again, he's a junkie. He likes to shaft junkie, not a junkie junkie. <laughs> so he likes to tinker. So for him, it saves him a lot of time having to go back and forth. And those things actually work really well. 
But as far as the, you know, from wherever overseas, generally this stuff's being made where I, I, I can't vouch for the quality of it because I've never worked with it. But I've seen stuff that people have brought to me and it has failed. So because of that, they, you know, they bought them, they put it together and it's failed. I just, I just choose to avoid it completely. Listeners, once again, we are speaking with Mr. Ryan Barath. He is of Golf WRX. He is a master club builder and fitter. And Ryan, just a couple more questions for you. And thanks again for your time tonight. Uh, shaft beads is something that we hear a lot about too, specifically on social media. Uh, some say that you need to use them. Others don't. Uh, do you have a preference? I don't always use them. It, it just depends on the style of golf club I'm building. It depends on the fit. Sometimes you have an adapter that fits a little bit bigger. What I like to I do, I don't mind using them. You want to use smaller stuff. So you want to use glass shafting beads. And there is a trick to it. So you mix your epoxy. You make sure that you, you stir it nicely. You don't actually whip it because as the more you like whip it, mm-hmm. literally whipped cream or whatever, you're, you're adding air to it, which you don't want to do. So it's more of like a gentle stir. And once you've got it stirred, you know that you've got it mixed. I like to let it sit for like say five minutes, five to ten minutes. I'm not going to build anything with it. It's just going to sit. I'm going to kind of start doing prep work. And then I'll add the shafting beads afterwards. And what you'll notice if you go to do that and you add a little bit of glass shafting beads and you don't need a lot, you just need enough to kind of coat the top of the amount of epoxy that you're using. So whatever amount you're using, you want to just put a nice fine layer. You don't want to pack it on like a little pile of snow. You just need a tiny thin little layer. And you'll also notice as soon as you do that, you'll see all these bubbles start to come because as it sat there, bubbles have, that were in the epoxy is going to rise to the top a bit. And then that little bit of glass shafting bead on top starts to pop all those little trapped air bubbles, air pockets. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got epoxy that is well mixed. It sat for a little bit, so it started to get a little bit thicker, which is generally better when you're building. And you've added something that's going to create, make it a little bit more viscous, and you've reduced the amount of air in it. So that's why, why I like to use it. You don't have to, but it's a good way to create a nice snug fit. So it just creates a stronger bond is, is uh, basically the main point of that, right? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like an aggregate in, of, in concrete, right? The reason they add those aggregates is because it actually increases the strength. It doesn't make it weaker. Hmm. And it doesn't not that it was weak before. It just helps it make it a little bit stronger. And that's what uh, shafting beads do. Good to know. All right, Ryan. So last question for you. And this is uh, going to be... Uh, back to something you mentioned earlier where you gave us a tip. Uh, you gave us one tip already. Is there another tip that you can leave our listeners with? Those of us who are the amateur club builders, maybe just looking to get into it as a hobby, is there something that you see people do wrong all the time and you just wish they would stop doing it that way? What's your best tip for our listeners to leave us with? Oh, man, there's so many. <laughs> minutes if you want. Uh, it's a two-parter. Uh, one of the things that I think and this is more, it really is just like a general statement is people rush or, you know, you try and use quick set epoxy and all of a sudden you didn't get the club head on in time. And now you're really messed up because you, you're not even playing the next day or whatever. You just want to put it together mm-hmm. and now you pull it apart. You got to clean it. You got to clean the shaft, all these different things. It's about taking your time and it's about doing things properly. The one thing I've always stressed is if you're going to do something, do it right the first time. Don't redo it twice. Don't do it twice because a it's going to take you longer in anyways. But you are you're wasting your own time by screwing something up because you wanted to rush. You wanted to do something quicker. Have it be putting on grips properly. 
making sure you use enough solvent, mm. cleaning the old grip tape. All these little steps, making sure you use the right ferrules for size, inside diameter and outside diameter relative to the club head. Because we're talking ferrules and, or sorry, we're talking. It's it's about using the right tools and taking your time. Because if you don't take your time and you don't use the right tools and you don't use the right materials, at the end of the day, you're not going to have something that's going to perform at its absolute best. You run the risk of it falling apart, and also it doesn't look very good. And I think that for me. Every golf club in my bag, I want someone to go look at it and go, man, it looks amazing. Like, look at that ferrule. Look at that. The grip's on. Well, hope everyone is on straight. But, like, mm-hmm. people are going to look at it and go, that looks really, really good. And from an amateur club builder or just as a, as a professional club builder, your work speaks for yourself. So if you take the time to do it properly, every time someone sees your golf bag, they're going to go, what's in there? What's cool? What's new? And if you do a crappy job, people are going to look and go, oh, you just like, you know, there's, there's epoxy everywhere. They didn't clean it properly. The ferrule's not turned down or any of those things. Grip's not on all the way and you get those loose little caps on the end. Right. It's all about quality versus quantity. And I think if people focus on that and they really focus on doing things right the first time and making sure they use the right tools, even if it means taking a little bit longer, you're going to have a better golf club at the end of the day. And you're going to have more confidence in it. Because if you said right off the top, right, you build a golf club the first time and you're kind of scared to swing it because you think that head's going to fall off. Right. I was like that for five years. The first five <laughs> golf clubs, every five swings, I, every the first five swings, I was like, this is either going to fly off or I'm going to have a golf club that's going to when I don't even think about it. But to have that confidence, you know, you got to take the time. And I think if, if you're an amateur club builder, you're just getting into it. If you take your time and you, and you focus on it, you're going to be able to do a really good job. Good stuff there, Ryan. And listeners, once again, this is Ryan Barath. He is of Golf WRX. Be sure to check out uh, everything that he does over there, as well as follow him on Twitter at RDS Barath. That's B-A-R-A-T-H. Ryan, I once again thank you for coming on tonight, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I really appreciate. It. I love, I love talking golf equipment. I love talking club building because I think that there's a lot of people can learn and just really honestly do things themselves not that i not that i don't want to do them for other people <laughs> but i think that you know if you, when you can take control and take ownership of your golf equipment it's one more thing that you can be proud of when you go out and play and if you shoot your best round you can say well I actually you know i built those irons i regrouped those those clubs and i i was able to take ownership of my golf game and uh what that does is you know it makes you like a at the end of the day a really a better golfer Totally agreed. Thank you again, sir, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. You Have a great day.